I did send out the notes. I had not originally intended on working through this, but I thought while baptism is still fresh in our minds, uh, we would think through uh, this idea that perhaps you've heard about or never heard about, uh, namely what to do with household baptisms, i.e., do we baptize unbelieving children? And I don't want to um, be nasty or feisty this morning, but at Grace Community, obviously we don't. We're Baptistic. Um, but I don't want to sort of attack the arguments of, of those we would disagree with, but rather just search the scriptures and, in the language of Paul, just say, uh, you are sensible people. Uh, hopefully, as we're working through the scriptures, uh, you will agree. And if not, uh, of course, come and talk to us. But uh, let me open up in a word of prayer, and we're just going to work primarily through the book of Acts this morning. So if you have your Bible, hopefully your thumb is nimble and we can uh, be flipping around. We're going to look at four passages. Father in heaven, we want to just thank you for this Lord's Day. Uh, Lord, even talking with someone yesterday, how he had felt so worn out and weary, how I said how good it is that we can gather together as a foretaste uh, of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like, that we can feast on Christ, that we can gather as your people and celebrate redemption together, that we can encourage and edify one another, and we can sing praises uh, to our King. Anyways, Father, as we open up your word, we pray that you would speak to us, that the Holy Spirit would be teaching us, and that this would not be the traditions of man that I am uh, trying to purvey, but Lord, uh, just unfolding your word. You say that the unfolding of your word gives light, and we pray that you would lead us and guide us, and that we would be noble Bereans, searching the scriptures daily to see if these things are so, and being convinced and having strong biblical convictions that inform how we live and walk individually and how we practice life together as a church. Father, please keep us from sin and give us a great love for Christ. And if there are any who are not saved even this morning, that even as you poured out the Spirit on Cornelius and his family and household and they were converted, I pray that you would do that on our households, that they would true, truly be born again and then be baptized, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 10. As you're opening up your Bibles, um, I've been following this fellow. He's a, a Reformed guy uh, north of Pittsburgh. Math knows who he is. His name is Matthew Everhart. He had this, this cheeky little shirt on, and it's sort of like, you know, drink beer, smoke cigars, baptize your babies, to that effect. And, uh, it, you know, it's kind of a popular thing. I've seen it here and there, and, like, this is kind of a, a manly thing to do. You know, love your wife, drink a beer, smoke a cigar, baptize your babies. And um, yeah, I, I sense that there's, there's a, a prevalency of, of a lot of Baptists who are actually starting to go um, not only um, covenantal, um, but also starting to, to just become paedo-Baptists or, or to become Presbyterian. It's kind of a catchy thing. And I want some of us to, to think about that because... Is baptizing your babies biblical? It might be cool, and it might be trendy on a shirt, um, but is it biblical? And so there's, there's usually two arms or two wings to the paedo-baptist argument, and one is theological, and I've never been convinced, and that's fine. They would say the same thing about the Baptist position. That's the theological, and they'd bring up passages like Colossians 2, which I think is one of the weakest arguments ever. I think it's the strongest argument of why we only baptized regenerated people who have circumcised hearts, but that's for another Sunday. 
Um, so the theological argument that they use, but often I've found in talking with people, they'll say, well, but the household baptisms. We just see in the early church they baptized their kids. And this, this came actually to light as I was counseling a couple. Um, the the to-be wife, they were about to get married, the to-be wife was baptistic, and the to-be husband was pedo-baptistic. And I said, well, this is not a big deal for you now, but once you get pregnant, can you submit to your husband who is the head of this family and says we're going to baptize or dip that little sucker or to sprinkle him, right? This is where it gets practical, and they had to think through it. And so what I did is with them both, I said, well, the best thing to do is not listen to what I have to say, but let's just look at what the Bible says. And so we worked through it, and I think by God's grace he was convinced, and though he's not Baptistic, they haven't baptized any of their children yet, and I hope that this will be as convincing to you. And if you have reformed friends you don't need to be pugnacious argumentative but you can actually say well this is what I believe the Bible clearly teaches which is why I don't baptize my babies right the reason why we're waiting until there's a credible profession bearing the fruits of repentance bearing a transformed life is because I would say baptism is for believers and the worst thing we can do is actually confuse our children into making them think well am I in the covenant or am I not And I'm going to show us from Jeremiah 31, you're in the covenant not by baptism. You're in the covenant by regeneration and faith in Christ, of which baptism is a picture of. Okay, you don't enter into the covenant by works. And I'll be cheeky a bit, but John Calvin and the Reformers didn't go far enough. And I would say that even the Westminster's divines, that they didn't go far enough. And that's why I'm convinced as a Reformed Baptist that they've thought through where they started. We're continuing on theologically and thinking biblically about these things. Enough about that, though. Acts chapter 10 and 11. Is anyone familiar with that story or that narrative? It's the story of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Acts 1.8 is the programmatic thesis of the book of Acts. Right In 1.6, they say, are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know times. And then he goes on to say that you will receive power, right? The Holy Spirit will be poured out and you will be my witnesses, right? Witnesses to my resurrection power and the kingdom's going to advance in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And unsurprisingly, that is Luke's um, map for the book of Acts, right? Gospel is preached in Jerusalem, Pentecost happens, the Spirit's poured out. They go then to Judea, to Samaria, and here we are now. We're into Gentile country. This is the the Spirit being poured out on Gentiles. This is the kingdom of God coming to the Gentiles. And it's the account of Cornelius. He has a vision. Peter also has a vision. And God has them meet up. So in Acts chapter 10 and 11, I have in my notes, at first glance, this seems a slam dunk for the Pado-Baptist position. However, a basic perusal of the text shows something altogether different. So look at Acts chapter 10, verse 24. So Cornelius has invited Peter and his Jewish friends to be their guests, right? He was in Joppa, and here they come now. They're at Cornelius' house. The next day he arose and went away with them, and they're in Joppa. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. That's important, right? They're just his relatives and close friends. Did Cornelius have a two-year-old or a six-week? We don't know. We have to be very careful of assuming what a household is. Maybe Cornelius was 50 and his kids had all moved out. 
I don't know. It just says here he had called together his relatives and close friends. Were they adults? Were they children? I don't know. Luke just tells us they were relatives and close friends. And we have to be very careful of, of making arguments from silence or being presumptuous or reading into the text. All we know is that Cornelius is there and he's invited his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. He's a pagan. right? He's a God-fearer, but he's still a pagan. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Again, we're not told the age. We're just told many persons. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you have sent me. Cornelius is going to say, well, I had a dream, and the reason that, that I have sent for you is because God told me you're going to give me a message. And this is actually quite important. Okay? Look in 1044. Peter is preaching the gospel to them. And it says, while Peter was still saying these things, what things? The gospel. The Holy Spirit fell on, what does it say? It fell on, on all of them. And if you've read Acts 1 through 9, the Holy Spirit, according to Luke, does not fall on unbelievers. Right? I hate being the guy who puts in all caps and bold, but I actually did that in the notes. I don't do that on, I'm not on Facebook anymore, but I don't do that online. I'm not one of those all bold, all caps guy, but I did do it in notes because words are important. If we believe to the plenary inspiration of the scriptures, i.e. every word is breathed out by God, including the word pas or panta, which means all in English, then all means all. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Who are the these people? The these are those who had the Holy Spirit poured on them. Right? And so here we are in verse 48. And he commanded them. Who's the them? Those who had the Holy Spirit poured out on them. And in the book of Acts, that means conversion. This isn't just an ecstatic utterance of a pagan or someone who's unconverted. It's the same thing we see in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit, in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 and Isaiah 44 and Ezekiel 36 and 37, when the, when the new covenant comes and the Spirit is poured out even on Gentiles, they're regenerated, they're converted, and then they're baptized. Okay? So when someone says, well, Cornelius baptized his household, the first thing you say is, well, were there children in the household? It just says here, friends and close relatives. Were there children? Maybe. But even if they were children, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, and they would have believed. They would have believed the gospel. They would not have been baptized as unbelievers. And if you have young children, I hope that's an encouragement to you, because the Holy Spirit can be poured out on your children as well. He can regenerate. Right? The Holy Spirit doesn't go around asking your children the age. You 12 yet? Love to regenerate you. Oh, you're only 11? Maybe I'll regenerate you next year. The Holy Spirit can regenerate our children at any age. This is the wonderful, electing, sovereign grace of God. Right? All of God's elect will have the Holy Spirit poured out on them, and then they're baptized. 
But Acts chapter 10 is then interpreted a little further by Acts chapter 11. It gets two whole chapters in Acts, which is very important. Luke wants us to understand the Gentiles are not kind of an afterthought in God's redemptive purposes, especially in the book of Acts, okay? And so if you're following in your notes, I move down in point three uh, to chapter 11, okay? So I said the angelic, the angel's prophetic message and Peter's interpretation in chapter 11, verses 14 to 18, proves that it was not unbelievers, but believers who were baptized. So let me read that to you, okay? Chapter 11 and verse 14. I'll start in 13, okay? And he told us how he had seen the angel. So this is Peter sort of giving his Cole's notes to the believers back in Jerusalem. He's explaining to them what happened at Cornelius' house. So Peter's giving an exclamation. And Cornelius told us, me and my Jewish friends, how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, verse 14. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. This is why I always love when you have your Bibles open. That you will be saved, comma, you and all your household. So, so Cornelius did baptize his whole household. Why? Not because he's paedo-baptist. Not because baptism is, is replacing circumcision. It, it kind of is, but not the way Reformed people say. He's baptizing his whole household because his whole household believes. I, I don't know how else to interpret that. I'm, I'm a simple guy, and I like simple Bible texts. This is, this is perfect for me. Right? He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. Awesome! I'll get saved, and as covenant head, I'll baptize my unbelieving babies. No. We don't even know if he has unbelieving babies, because the text doesn't say. But all those in his household, they too will be saved. By which you will be saved, you and all your household. Verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Who's the them? The all of chapter 10 and the all of chapter 11. Just as on us at the beginning. Just as the Spirit fell on the Jews in Acts chapter 2, it's now falling on the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. By the way, this will help you understand when you're talking to your charismatic friends who say you need to speak in tongues. You say, no. The Gentiles spoke in tongues the same way the Jews spoke in tongues. This doesn't happen Every time in the book of Acts, just when something monumental is happening, it happens in Acts 2, in Acts 8, in Acts 10. When the Jews believe the gospel, when the Samaritans believe the gospel, when the Gentiles believe the gospel. Why do I not need to speak in tongues when I got converted? Because they did it in Acts 10. Done. Gentiles spoke in tongues in Acts 10. Right? It's a legitimate conversion. They've received the Spirit. We don't do so anymore. It's a once-for-all thing. The Gentiles spoke in tongues in Acts 10. We don't need to be doing it 2,000 years later. That's for another sermon. Okay? The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So baptism is a picture of the Holy Spirit regenerating. It's not the, baptism is not a picture of the forward-looking promise this is how Calvin saw it. No, baptism is pointing back to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the elect. If then God gave them the same gift as he gave us to... Okay, this is where you should be circling. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when? When we what? When we believed. 
I hope this is just, I don't think anyone here disagrees, but I hope you, you know this is why we're doing it. Not because we're Baptist, because we believe this is what the scriptures clearly teach, which is congruent with our Baptistic convictions. God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, the Jews, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is another passage when you're talking to your... Acts is full of great passages when you're disagreeing. This is great for your Armenian friends, right? Because repentance is a gift just like faith, right? <laughs> you can have Armenian friends, Josh. Um, but repentance is not something that you work up. If it is, then it's probably a spurious repentance like that of Judas. It's a false repentance. It's not the repentance of 2 Corinthians 7. This is the repentance that God gives that leads to life. Repentance is a good thing. If God grants you repentance, see it as a gift of his grace and know that repentance doesn't lead to, to an ungodly sorrow, but it leads to a sorrow that leads to life. And that's what God granted these Gentiles. So I just put it is beyond dispute that only believers were immersed in Acts 10 and 11, just like every other incident in the book of Acts, right? Individuals believe and are baptized. If a household believes, then they're baptized. If an individual believes and his household doesn't, the household doesn't get baptized. Clear? I think so. I, I, I really, I've, I read a lot on it. I'm like, man, these guys, they could be gymnasts the way they treat the text. Acts 16, 15. This is the story of Lydia, and I'm not going to say much about it because Luke doesn't. You see, this is the danger. Just let the text be the text. If the text doesn't deal with it, don't deal with it. So I just put, this is tricky, as almost no details are given. This is Acts 16, 15. Other than that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to and receive Paul's message, and that she was then subsequently baptized and her household as well. That's all Luke says. Right? Did, did she have young kids? I don't know. Did her household include, you know, older servants? Because maybe she was a single business. We don't know. We, have, we can't speculate about Lydia. All we know is God opened her heart. She received the gospel. She was baptized. And then her household was baptized. But I'm going to say Acts 10 and 11 has a lot more weight in, in how I see things than Acts 16, 15. Like two whole chapters, pretty clear, one verse, quite obscure. Which are you going to sort of give precedence to? I, I hope Acts 10 11 or the other incident in Acts 16. Okay? This is the account of the household baptism of the Philippian jailer. So, you know the story. Paul gets arrested. Him and Silas are singing hymns. There's the crazy earthquake. The jailer's about to kill himself. Paul says, it's all good. We're all here, which is a sovereign miracle. Right? Like, if I was a prisoner, an unregenerate prisoner, and the, and the gates open for me, I'm thinking one thing. I'm out of here. But God sovereignly restrained them for the sake of this Philippian jailer. Right? He's, he's going to kill himself because that was sort of what happened. If you let your prisoners go, you got their sentence. He has the sword to his throat, and Paul says, hey, stop. We're all here. Don't do anything foolish. Somehow, some way. This guy says, what must I do to be saved? I'm assuming Paul and Silas were singing the Psalter. I have to be careful. 
But I believe they were singing psalms that were Christocentric. Because obviously he had heard them say something that showed that he was a sinner and that God had provided salvation. Again, that's a little bit speculative, but he had heard enough and he knew that he needed to be saved. And so we know the famous verse in 30, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or sorry, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Get your nose down in the Bible quick. You will be saved, comma, you and your household. That's identical to what was told to Cornelius, okay? So believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. How are you saved? Not by baptism, but by faith in the gospel. And you will be saved by faith in the gospel, and so will your household. See, Paul's a prophet, and we forget that. He's not just an apostle. Paul's a prophet, and he knew this. And this was important for the redemptive work to go forward in Philippi. And he had received revelation that not only would this, this um, jailer believe, but also his household. So, so if faith comes by hearing, verse 32 says, hearing comes by the word of the Lord. And the, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family. So if you're only looking at verse 33, like, see, there you go. But you have to look, actually, in verse 31. Right? In all of Acts, salvation precedes baptism. And I would say, in all of Acts, salvation of household precedes baptism of household. That's just how God chose to work. He loves to work through households. I'm covenantal, trust me, as a Reformed Baptist. But I want to be biblically covenantal and not say more than the text says or to make presumptions about somehow, right? The household believed, the household was baptized. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And I'm going to read the ESV and then I'm going to ask some people with non-ESVs to read verse 34. Okay. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so, do you understand the ESV? A lot of the translators were more reformed. And every other translation I could find, I'm sure there's others out there, every other translation said something to the effect that his family believed. His family rejoiced because his family had believed with him that they had believed the Lord. So the ESV is unique there. So does anyone have another translation? Other? So Mike, you have the New King James. What does 34 say? Now when he had brought them into his house, he sat food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. See, it's a little more ambiguous, but he had believed in God with all his household. Does anyone have another translation? What is yours, Brian? Okay, what translation are you using? NIV. Okay, so the NIV would, would follow the New King James. Anyone have an NLT? Warren, you got your NLT? The NLT is the clearest of, of I think, what Luke is saying. The one day. Okay. Does anyone have another? I can quickly look up the NLT. LSB, go for it, Jesse. Okay, so the LSB is actually the one that's like the ESV. That's a little bit there. I know the New American, you have the New American Standard. I think it's different from the LSB, correct? It is, yeah. Can you read the New American? Uh, 
having believed God with his whole household. Okay, so here's the net. Levi loves the net, and I love the net too. Oh, do you have it? Go for it. Can you read verse 34 as well, brother, please? 34? Yeah. Oh, 1634, sorry. You're in 1134, I think. 1634. Sorry. While you're looking that up, I'll read to you the NLT. It says, He brought him or them into his house and set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. I know, NLT is a bit paraphrastic, but they're catching what I think the Greek is saying. It's a bit ambiguous and only the SV and, and slightly the LSV, but almost every other translation is making it very clear that the Greek and the context would say they all. Have you found it yet, brother? Go for it. And so that's the same word, household. And then 34, it says about the jailer, he brought them sorry, uh, into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced greatly that he had come to believe in God together with his entire household. So I, I don't want to read every translation, but the NET, the NIV, the NLT, the King James, the New King James, the NASB, um, the CSB, the Holman, almost all of them have this idea. And so I, I would just say that translators who know Greek even, even, that's not any great, who know Greek far better than me, it seems to be very agreed upon that the whole household believe. So I have no problem with household baptisms as long as the household believes, okay? So we've looked at Acts 10 and 11. Lydia doesn't help too much, but I think this is quite clear that the, in, the entire household was rejoicing, not only because Cornelius believed, but because they had all likewise believed, we're getting there. It's almost 10. Acts 18. Acts 18. A man named Crispus. I'm sure he had some funny nicknames as a kid growing up. Acts 18 and verse 8. So Paul is ministering in Corinth. And this is after Silas and Timothy had arrived. And, and revival's breaking out. Because Paul can now devote himself solely to the ministry of the word. He had, he had left Athens by himself. And here he was at the beginning ministering. And he got a little bit discouraged. And, and, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in night in a vision and said, I have many people, Paul. S stick it out. Be faithful. Don't be afraid. I have many people, including people like Crispus. So it says here, that after he got the boot from the synagogue, in a great account of irony, he goes right beside the synagogue in verse 8. Christmas, the ruler of the synagogue, then therefore believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So that's the third time. Acts 10 and 11, 
Acts 16, Acts 18. The household is going to be baptized. But what does Luke say in every single time? The household believed. I'm very simple, but to me that just seems pretty clear. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, comma, together with his entire household. Right? It's not like most of them believed. It's like, well, you know, five out of six, but we'll just baptize all of them. Just words are important to me. Entire means entire. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And then the Lord goes on to say, stick it out, Paul. Continue teaching the word. Okay? So the pattern of household baptism in Acts clearly teaches that no unbelievers were baptized. Right? Not just in the household passages, but when you just read all the other baptism accounts, only believers were baptized, and I would say that includes households. Okay? Last one, and this is outside of uh, the book of Acts, and it's just in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and it's kind of akin to uh, Acts 15. Not much is said, and the reason I put this is because I don't want you to think I'm trying to hide anything. I want to be you know, open and honest by an open statement of the truth. I want to, to show you what the scripture says. However, just because it says nothing, I have three other passages that have much to say. And when you're learning how to study the Bible, always study the unclear or interpret the unclear in light of the clear, right? If, if, if there's something is like, I don't know what this says. Is there another passage where it's clearly stated, right? Don't, don't, don't form all of your doctrines and convictions off of passages that are vague like this. Okay, so Acts 1, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 1.16, Paul saying, God sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, right? So there's, there's Paul in, in Acts 18, right? Preaches and Crispus, I am assuming it's the exact same Crispus. He believes, his entire household believes. Paul baptizes Crispus so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. I did also, uh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So it's a bit reading into, but I would say that Paul not only baptized Crispus, but also the, the household of Crispus, because Luke says they all believed. And I'm going to say, therefore, in light of Acts 10, 11, Acts 16, Acts 18, that's not only Stephanus believed, but also his household. Okay, because Paul would never baptize a household unless the household had all believed. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's right. I don't just preach the, I preach the gospel and those who believe are baptized. Just like in every other place in the New Testament, if your children believe, baptize them. If they don't believe, pray that God would save them and then baptize them. So you can wear those cheeky shirts or, you know, they're, they're kind of fun to watch. But I, I, I thought about buying it and actually just putting like a, a, a somehow crossing it out or, or putting like a little in, you know, when you sort of insert something, baptize your believing babies. But that would be picking fights with my pedo friends who I love. And if you look at most of the books on my shelf, they are from pedo Baptists. However, us Reformed Baptists are starting to think a little more clearly and hopefully there'll be a proliferation of books in the coming future. Okay, so conclusion. Though these might not be clinchers in your mind, I just want to say it seems very clear. Like this might not have convinced you, but I want you to say there's a strong argument, a clear argument, I hope compelling and convincing 
Only believers. I said that in the last two times, only believers. And Acts, I think, would buttress that argument. Okay? The practice of baptism or immersion in the book of Acts aligns itself most clearly with Jeremiah 31, 33. And I do want to read this. This is, this is helping you understand, right? If, if you want the text, and there's many of them, but if you want the clincher of why we don't baptize unbelievers, it has to be pro, uh, Jeremiah 31. Okay, so just turn there quick. It's right after the book of Isaiah. And you're to read Jeremiah 30 through 33 as a unit. But God's promising something radically new in how he deals with his people, which the book of Hebrews elaborates on a little more further, in chapter 8 especially. Okay, so just follow along. So it's not inspired, but in, in the ESV I've got a heading. It says, the new covenant, circumcision, was practiced under the old covenant. And the new covenant has continuity with the old, but it also has some radical discontinuity. And if you get that balance wrong, right, you're going to either be baptizing all of your babies or you're going to be a hardcore dispensational. I'm not taking shots. I'm just saying, right, like, Israel means nothing to us. That's what what dispensationalists will say. And then paedo-baptists will say, no, you know, it's equated. And I would say the Reformed Baptist position is biblically balanced right in the center, that there's continuity, right? There's, there's things that God takes from the Old Covenant, but there's also radical discontinuity. There's a newness of the New Covenant. And I will say that the, the most clear expression of the newness is that only regenerate believers are part of the New Covenant. You could be part of the Old Covenant as an unbeliever. You, you entered into the covenant people through circumcision. And you could be as unregenerate as can be, which is why Moses and the prophets said, you need to have your heart circumcised. You're no different, you circumcised Jews, than the uncircumcised pagans. Behold, the days are coming. And Jesus quotes this at the Last Supper. And the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. See, a dispensationalist is going to read this into the future, right? They're going to say, God, ha- God has not taken those, that broken branch and united Israel, literally, and Judah, literally. And I have to say, how does the New Testament interpret this? Okay, the New Testament is saying this has happened. This, this is for us in the new covenant. It's not for future Israel and future Judah. Okay, I'm laying the New Testament, and I'm saying this is for us, because Jesus quoted it, and the book of Hebrews quotes this. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All they knew in the old covenant was the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You could say, with God's people. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Right? This cannot just be with the literal house of Israel. This is for us, even as Gentiles, the way the New Testament says it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is also quoted in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall... 
all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Okay, and so that's quoted in the New Testament and it's applied to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you enter into the new covenant by faith. That's what Peter says in Acts 15. The Gentiles were cleansed by faith. That's Acts 15, 8. The way we were cleansed by faith and enter into the new covenant as Jews, the Gentiles likewise enter into the new covenant and are cleansed. But it's by faith. And the new covenant isn't going to be like the old covenant where you could be an unbeliever and part of that covenant community. Which is also why we're very careful about fencing the table. Because covenant benefits are for covenant people or for covenant children. Okay? All, all will know me. Not know about me. All will have a relationship with me. All will have called upon me. The law will be written on their hearts. That is, they will love God's law. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. It's sort of uh, reiterated in Ezekiel 36 and 37. What is the radical newness of the new covenant? Only believers are in the covenant. If you've not repented, you're not in the covenant. And I think it would be a disservice, and it's actually even dangerous to baptize someone into the covenant when they're clearly not in it, because now they're confused. There's the third way. Am I in the covenant? I don't know. I was baptized as a baby. I guess so. Have you believed? No. Are you in the covenant? Maybe. Let's not confuse our children that way. That's not fair to them. You enter in by faith. The question is not, are you baptized? The, ba the question first is, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the triune God? Do you have a new heart? Yes, Nathan. Yeah, it was forward-looking. Amen. Oh, yeah, like First Corinthians 7, like it's the same thing, yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, and a lot of these were developed, I think, more uh, pastorally than theologically. I've got an excellent book, and it traces through especially Calvin, but even guys like John Owen, who, who I think theologically was there, but if you know the story of John Owen, he lost almost all of his children early in infancy, and so there's that hope. Right? And there's a little bit of that residual Catholicism that when, you're, when your infant dies, well, hopefully because they're baptized, they're covenant children. And I will say that baptizing your children does not add or take away from the doctrine of God's election. God will save his elect. They will all know me. And as Baptists, we should actually, right? We should, often the Baptists like, well, we're in, well, you should be leading family devotions as a Baptist. You should be giving your kids the gospel. You should have great hope that God will save your children. But he does so through the gospel and not because of some magical ritual of, of sprinkling water on them, right? The promises are for those who are far off, Acts 2. But it's not the promise of baptism. It's the promise of God pouring out his spirit on his elect people and granting them repentance unto life. That's 237 through 42. You know, and so, so please hear what Nathan said. We want to see our children saved. But for goodness sake, don't baptize them. Preach the gospel to them and plead with God to save them. But I'm way past my allotted time. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble if, if I continue on. So, uh, Matt, Brother Matt is going to be leading the next couple of Sunday schools on what the uh, confession teaches on good works, uh, which I think is fitting for us who've thought about conversion and what does it look like to be converted. Um, but I think we'll end with baptism. And if you have any questions, come talk with me. I didn't want to be as pugnacious. I hope I didn't get too passionate. But we're just going to baptize believers here, and I hope you, you can understand that. Father, we do want to thank you. I pray that, that we've not become arrogant or proud. We never want to look down our nose. I pray for humility. To be right is not the same as being righteous. And so, Father, please grant us um, just a, a real graciousness that for those we disagree with, that we would do so theologically but also humbly. Lord, that, that you will resist uh, those who have the truth but are arrogant, and we don't want to be, Lord, like that. And I, I do pray for our children. I pray, Lord, that you would save them, that you would be gracious and give them a new heart. The Holy Spirit would fall upon them, that they'd be granted repentance unto life, that they would be given faith to believe in Christ, that the, those sweet and precious promises would be owned by them because they belong to you, and they shall know you. Write the, the law upon their hearts. Would they love your law? Would they delight to do it as Christ did because you have given them a new nature? Not only save our children, but Lord, at the appropriate time, may they be immersed. And Father, would they live as lights in this world? Would, would we, Lord, who have been baptized, remember what you've done for us in Christ? And would you give us grace to even this day walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of the one who died and rose again for our justification? We pray it in his name. Amen.